Uh, welcome to Indelible Grace Church. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm glad you guys could join us on this cold and windy day here at the park or on the live stream, if that's where you're viewing. Um, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Deuteronomy. We started this last year, and we went through the first 11 chapters as a church together, and then we took a brief season and pause as we talked about relationships through the book of Proverbs. And this morning, um, I ask for your guys' patience, this morning is going to be a little bit more of a technical sermon. As we're getting into this second, really, half of the book of Deuteronomy, um, I wanted, with this passage this morning, I thought it'd be helpful to show some of the ways in which we actually apply the Old Testament as believers. We're going to be focusing on the topic that's in Deuteronomy 12, which is worship, but I wanted to show um, how the law, how the Ten Commandments actually shape these case study laws that we're going to be in for a while in the book of Deuteronomy. And so I'm going to kind of try to show some of the work of that, of how as Christians, under the new and better covenant, how we read these laws, these case laws, because these Ten Commandments were given not just for the Israelites, but are given to us by our God who does not change and who still values the things that he sets forth in the Ten Commandments. So if you'd forgive me with that this morning, I also think this is an appropriate time of year to do this because for many people, uh, New Year's is when they begin a new Bible reading plan. And when you begin a new Bible reading plan, oftentimes, if you're trying to read through the Bible in a year, you're going to read four to five chapters a day for 365 days. And typically, when those Bible reading plans start, you're going to spend a lot of time reading the Old Testament. And when reading the Old Testament, you go through and you see a lot of this language about sacrifices, including we're going to see language about sacrifices and offerings today in our passage in Deuteronomy 12. And oftentimes it can seem, what is the point of this? What is the point of these these laws? What is the point of these case laws even if we have this new and better covenant in Christ? There's this once and for all atonement. And so if you'll forgive me this morning with some of the, the technical work we'll do in the sermon, um, I'm, I'm looking to have it be a way that we can actually model how do we read the Old Testament as believers? As well as, for those of you who have maybe started a Bible reading plan through in a year like my wife and I, This will help equip you as you're reading through large sections of the Old Testament, probably throughout this entire year. And so throughout our study in Deuteronomy so far, to highlight a couple things, if you want, you can turn to Deuteronomy 12 if you brought your Bible with you while I go through this. But I want to catch us up. I want to give a recap, similar to the way uh, when you haven't, when your favorite TV show has been off for a whole year and then it comes back on. I'm always very, very thankful for the season recap. What happened last season? Where am I coming back in the story? So as we jump back into Deuteronomy 12 this morning, I thought it would be helpful. Throughout our study of Deuteronomy, in these first 11 chapters we've already gone through, we've seen a focus, and that focus has actually been things that God has already done. Now, Deuteronomy is a sermon that Moses is giving on behalf of God to his people, and they're in the Transjordan. The Transjordan is actually already a part of the territory of what is to be the promised land. And so they're... they're in, but not in fully yet into this promised land. And God is looking to prepare his people. And so throughout the first 11 chapters, there's an emphasis on everything God has done to get them this far. They're literally, um, to use, I'm not a sports fan, but to use a sports analogy, they're on the five-yard line. They're about to be there. They're already in part of it that will become their ancestral land. And now we hit chapter 12 with these case laws. And these case laws are going to go through, and actually a wonderful, beautiful thing is that it's going to be giving God's people how they actually are to fulfill God's law that he has given to them. And these are actually going to be tied 
to the Ten Commandments that God has already given them. He's not giving them more commandments. That's what case law is doing. It's actually spelling it out for them. But it's actually going to reflect who this God is that has been the one who's redeemed them. So everything we've seen in the first 11 chapters, we're going to continue to actually see throughout the rest of the book as God's law is applied to particular circumstances. So this morning as we go through Deuteronomy 12, we're going to have some of those technical parts, as well as we're going to answer just one big question this morning. And it's the the title of the sermon in the bulletin. And that question is, how does God teach us to worship? And outlined for you in the bulletin is the, the two answers we're going to look at from Deuteronomy chapter 12. And that's that God informs us and God forms us. Informs and forms. So if you would, if you have not, we'll read Deuteronomy 12 together now. It's printed for you in your bulletin. And if you're watching at home over the live stream, you can actually just see the words come up on the screen here in a moment. Hear now the holy and infallible word of God. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on earth. You shall surely destroy all of the places where the nations whom you shall dispose serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose. Out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present. Your vow offerings, your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice you and your households in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone is doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest in the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you in inheritance, and when he gives you rest from all of your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present, and all of your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see. But at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. This is the word of the Lord. It was given for our good. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for this day that you have given to us, uh, a day in which um, your mercies are new, in which uh, in your grace for this world, in your common grace, you, you give rain um, to both the just and to the wicked, and the sun shines down on both the just and the wicked. Lord, you in your providence and mercy um, see fit to number man's days, to give us our boundaries upon the earth. Lord, that we might 
um, learn of your mercies, that we might glorify you and that we might serve you. We pray now as we turn to, to look at your holy word, Lord, that we would take it with soft hearts and open ears. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so diving into that, that first answer there, of we're answering that big question of how does God teach us to worship? Uh, first answer there is that God informs us. And so as I've set up already, the rest of Deuteronomy is going to have a lot to do with case laws. And we, we already just read even some of them today. And I highlighted for you in the introduction as we were coming into it that m- most of these are actually going to reflect in the Ten Commandments. And so here in our passage that's concerning about worship, you might be able to guess which commandments does this relate to. And it's actually the first and the second commandment. So if I could read those for you briefly from Exodus chapter 20. We read, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So we need to remember that throughout the book of Deuteronomy, God is not only seeking to ready his people, he's seeking for them to actually understand his law that he has given to them. Or as verse 1 of our passage even points out, if you look back with me, that these are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that God is giving you. So here's the preparation, and we've seen this again and again already throughout the book of Deuteronomy. This first verse should sound very familiar by now, that God is clearly looking to prepare his people. And these case laws, they're not more laws, but application of how God's people are to live as his people in God's land. Or as our passage says, the place that he will actually make his habitation. This is why this morning we're focusing on this question. This is why we're spending some time on the the, the technical aspect of what it is when we're studying the Old Testament, how we apply it to the life of Christians under the new covenant. See, God's desire for the Israelites is that they might learn to worship him. And this is the same. Our God is the same. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one. And so his preparing for himself a people, a holy people set apart that he has redeemed, that does not change under the covenants. Rather, it is the once and for all under Christ. So this preparing on how then we might worship is still just as relevant for the church today as it was for Israel in the Transjordan, waiting to inherit all of the promised land. If you look back with me now at verse 2 and following, we read in the passage, You shall surely destroy all of the places where the nations whom you shall dispose serve their gods on high mountains and on high hills of every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash to pieces their pillars and their burnt ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. This is pretty serious language, church. I mean, even if we just look back over that list, what are the things that we see that Israel is to do about these Canaanite gods in the land that is becoming theirs? They are to, if we just even look back at the verbs, they are to destroy, tear down, dash to pieces, chop, burn with fire. It begs the question, then, why should all of these things be destroyed? And God informs Israel what they're to do. Which is what we see is that our God actually teaches us how to worship. And here is this first way that they need to. Israel is to leave no remnant or paraphernalia of any kind of the false worship and idolatry that has existed in the land. God is redeeming the land, making it holy, 
and claiming it as his own. God is teaching Israel, God teaches the church the same thing, that he takes his worship very seriously. So much so, in fact, that all of this is to be done so that the Canaanite gods' names don't even remain. And what's the importance of names in the ancient Near East? See, all of the fabric of society and even the names of places would reflect the presence and the power of that nation's God. The land of a deity would represent their presence. And so to remove the names of the Canaanite gods was to remove their presence, their power, their authority, to remove them from memory. That way it would not be passed on to future generations. And God's holy name alone would be worshipped there. And he would not share his glory with another. He would not coexist with false worship or idolatry. His people are to be holy as he is holy. So God is informing his people how they might obey his commandments. And as the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And before me is a way to say no other gods with within his presence. There is to be no false worship. There is to be no idolatry before him. And here we have that he is setting aside not only this people that he has redeemed, but this particular place. So nowhere in his presence, destroyed, burnt, chopped, dashed to pieces, is to be all other worship. Worship is for the true God alone. And as the second commandment says that you shall not make for yourself carved images, you should not make idols out of anything, no matter what it reflects, something from earth, something from the water, something from heaven. God is calling for his people to wipe out all of the idols. And God is teaching his people how he is to be worshipped and obeyed as they go into the promised land. And we see that throughout all of scripture, our need is for God to inform us. Because of our sin, we need God to teach us how we might worship and obey. It is not native to us as people who know sin and misery in a fallen world. But rather, we need God to actually tell us. We are unable to even see the thing that is before us. And this is not something just true for the Israelites that are about to enter the promised land. This is true for us. And this is actually what we see throughout all of Scripture. Three examples for you. If you think of Haggai the prophet, God, God sends the prophet Haggai because God's people aren't taking worship as seriously as they should. And so this is a lesson that's learned again and again. Haggai, the people, they're, they're back from the dispersion. They're back in the place. And God actually sends Haggai to say, why do you dwell in paneled houses while God's house lies in ruins? And God's people, what's being highlighted there, the paneled houses, these are houses that are complete. They're already done and they haven't even begun rebuilding the temple. Their priority was their own comfort, not the worship of the God that was bringing back to them to their land. Or even another example we see in the ministry of Jesus, perhaps as we were talking about, as we're talking about worship this morning, you thought of John chapter four, where Jesus is sitting at a well with a Samaritan woman who asks him, where are we to worship? The Jewish fathers say here, the Samaritans say here, where are we to worship? And Jesus tells her that the father is looking for worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth. See, the Samaritan woman had valued her tradition more than the type of worship. And God has called his people to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. So Haggai, they were neglecting the temple. And the woman at the well, she's too worried about the tradition and where they should be. 
amongst other things. And lastly, a third example that I could give you is when the Apostle Paul writes a strong rebuke to the church of Corinth. Pastor Michael last week preached from part of one of the, uh, from the second letter. But if you read through first and second Corinthians, you see that things were not going well at Corinth. There was a lot of temptation to intermix their worship and the practices in the same way that we see in other letters in the New Testament. And we actually see a passage that we read almost every time we come to the Lord's table is where it quotes the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we see there that they were actually having issues in and around their worship of coming to the table is that some out of their own selfish ambition and really the desire for their own stomach to be full were neglecting caring for others. They weren't actually seeing that the worship that God wants is actually community-based, that it's not just about you, it's actually about also the community of God's people. And so throughout all of time, we need God to inform us of how to worship. It's true for the Israelites before the promised land. It's true as they're being brought back into the promised land. It's true when our Lord and Savior sits at a well with a woman. And it's true in after, after his life, death, resurrection, that the church actually still struggles with this. In a world with sin and misery, we still struggle with this idolatry. The reformer, John Calvin, put it this pithy way, that our hearts are like idol factories. That again and again, we find new ways to make idols. That we find new ways where we don't actually take worship seriously. And so when it comes... Sorry about that. The tent almost flew away for those of you at home that couldn't see. Um, don't worry, it's take down. Um, we see time and time again this summary throughout Scripture. And this is one of the parts where I'm going to get a little bit more technical. Because the, the, the technical language that we would use to kind of summarize this in studying all of Scripture is what's called the regulative principle of worship. And as Christians, this means that we believe that God speaks authoritatively through His Word. And in Scripture, God actually informs His people how they are to worship. And God controls how His people are to worship. And for the Israelites, they are not going to choose how they worship their God. They've tried to do that before. If you turn back and looked at the golden calf incident, that was Israel trying to worship the God that brought them out of slavery in their own way. But rather, throughout Scripture, what we would summarize as the regular principle of worship is that God alone actually gets to say how he is glorified. God alone actually informs us as sinners that he has redeemed how we are to glorify and to enjoy him. Or if you look back at our passage with me, verses 4 and 5 read, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, like, like the Canaanites, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose. Israel is not going to choose how they worship their God in the same way that we cannot choose how we worship our God. And neither, yeah, and neither can we. This is what this theological principle means. It is a way to summarize that's what scripture teaches about the topic of worship. This regular principle of worship is that God's people are not to choose practicalities, appearance of, appearance of wisdom, smells, bells, or our own personal comfort. We are told that our preferences there do not have value. The preferences of worship go to he who is worshipped. And he who is the only one who is worthy of worship. And we are looking to worship God in the way that he prescribes. Taking seriously the boundaries that he's given in scripture. And we see here that he gives serious boundaries to the Israelites. With very real consequences. 
Worship is for God alone, and he's not going to share his glory with another. And our goal is to worship God in the way that he deems fit, that he deems acceptable. This is why God is making sure his people know this before they enter the promised land. How are they going to keep these? They're going to keep these first two commandments that God has actually already informed them how they are to do this. And they are to do this in a serious manner. And this is something that we apply to all of life. That God's truth and his worship will not share his glory with another. This means that we are to take our worship seriously. This is something that if you keep reading throughout the history of Israel, you will see time and time again that Israel struggles not to place other things or gods before the only true God. And our struggle is much the same today. For Israel, and even for the ancient church, and even for us now, we encounter a world that offers religious plurality and even calls for others to coexist. And God commands his people that they must remove all other gods or idols, that they cannot be before him. We need God to help us see the idol factories that are in our heart, in our own sin and misery. And we often follow our own desires. This means that for us to learn to worship seriously like God is commanding the Israelites as he's teaching them here, that we need to be informed about what God says. We need to be informed about what scripture says, what scripture sets forth as the way to worship. And the reality is that we, we face is that we are often just bad at it. We need God's help, which turns us to my second point, the second answer to this question of how does God teach us to worship? And that's that God actually forms us. Because we are not able to do it on our own, God must act. God himself gives what he demands, and he calls for himself and makes for himself a people, not because they are deserving, but because he makes them his treasured possession. Look back with me at verse 8 in the passage. We see that you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Here we read a common summary that we actually see throughout the Old Testament to describe the sinful hearts of mankind. And this is very important to our context this morning as we're looking at this passage in Deuteronomy. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes describes sin. Or I had a professor in my undergrad that would put it this way, that everyone doing what is right in their own eyes is like trying to serve the God of your own belly button. And it's intentionally meant to sound like an absurdity, the God of your own belly button. This is to look at you, yourself, your own desires, and to look at what you can get or what you just feel is right. It's to remove God's place of actually getting to define what worship is and say, I actually care more about what, what does John think about this? And so not only does God inform us, he actually changes our hearts that we might be formed, that we might be transformed. And this is why... We need this. This is why the Israelites needed this as they were about ready to enter the promised land. God must actually teach us how to worship. Or another place as you're reading, if you, perhaps you're are joining in a journey to read through the Bible in a year, or even with your New Year's resolutions or just looking to read scripture more, a helpful thing as you're reading, especially in the Old Testament, is at the gutter of the page, the very bottom where there's the footnotes, or maybe in a side column uh, of your Bible, you have what's called cross-references. They correlate to different places. And if you look up the passage that we're looking at in Deuteronomy 12, odds are your Bible is actually going to have Ezekiel 20 listed there. And Ezekiel 20 actually mentions exactly what we're talking about here today. 
not only to give more context, but we see actually how God is working from beginning to end. This is Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 28 and 30. The prophet Ezekiel says, For when I brought them into the land that I swore to give them, then wherever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, sounding familiar to our passage in Deuteronomy 12, there they offered their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas, and there they poured out their drink offerings. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go on whoring after detestable things? This is serious. We actually see that the Israelites, they're not perfect. We're not perfect. But that not only did their time in the wilderness meant to be discipline and instruction for them, that they might learn how to be God's holy people. But even as they're across the Transjordan and they're about to enter the promised land, They've still going and doing their own thing. They're going and saying, well, you know, the, the, the people that used to live in this land, the Canaanites, they, they would go worship like under that tree. They would go up to that high hill, basically anywhere that they looked and deemed fit. And not only in Deuteronomy, but in Ezekiel, we read, this is exactly what they were doing. And so here is this serious rebuke where God's not only trying to inform his people, he's also trying to form them that their affections might be made right. And he's telling them, we will not worship in this way in which you do everything that is right in your own eyes. This is actually something we see throughout this this term, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. We see this again and again throughout scripture. Most notably, perhaps, it makes you think of the book of Judges, where the phrase occurs again and again to describe what God's people were doing. In the days when everyone was doing right, what was right in their own eyes. And here is this interesting contrast that we have. Because Israel is to not do this, but God is going to choose the place, the manner even, of how his people worship. See, in the pagan sanctuaries of the Canaanite gods, you would look to build something that glorified them, or if they were a deity over a certain type of nature, you would try to go to that certain type of nature as a place of worship and offering, that you might honor them somehow and that you might somehow gain the favor of these gods that reigned over different areas of life. And having entered the Transjordan and preparing to take the promised land, Israel had already fallen into mixing what their God had commanded with the people that had lived in the land before. So most notably, perhaps we could use Baal as an example. He's one of the most common names that we read of one of the Canaanite gods. He was the pagan god of rain, And this ends up mixing a big deal over several different times with the Israelites. And it would be a very big deal, a God of rain, if if you grew all of your own food and your herds and your flocks needed water. It'd be a very big deal, the God of rain. And so we see him come up again and again, this false Canaanite God. But the worship of these pagan gods would also somewhat form how the person lived. It would either have no ethic or it would have unethical things attached to it. So... To worship Baal, we would actually see from from history, from archaeology, that there would actually be pretty perverse sexual acts associated with worshiping this God. And so here's this contrast. You do not get to determine how God is worshipped. Instead, God is going to tell you how to worship. And if you look back with me again at verse 5 and following, we see, But you shall seek the place that your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name He's removing the other names. He's putting his name. 
to make a habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your contribution, your vow offerings, your free will offering, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your household, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Not only is Israel to worship at the place chosen by their God, but he is also forming them by what he has commanded. How does God teach us to worship? He informs us and he forms us. He will act and put his name there. He will dwell with his people. His name will be made great. As his obedient people, they are to worship in the ways that God has told them. And God will provide what they need for worship. There is no ambiguity or guessing how do they worship. Instead, they are told. And he will teach them how to worship and how to be his holy people. And this is something that involves the whole family that you and your households will go and worship. This is something we see just as true under the old covenant as the new covenant. For all of time, God is making for himself a worshiping people that are to be holy and to be his. Their worship was not to take place at the, at the sites that other people deemed as important or religious or other things that seemed interesting or wise that other religions did. Rather, it was to be wholly his. God forms his people's worship. And just like the Israelites, we are often tempted to do whatever is right in our own eyes. We are tempted to worship in our own way. We are tempted to have our heart idol factories to hide them from the people in our lives that might actually rebuke or correct us. And instead, we look not to God, but to borrow that expression from an old professor of mine again, we look to our own belly button. How do I feel? How do I want this to go? What is it the things that I want to get out of worship? And we don't actually approach God the way that he seriously approaches worship as he not only makes atonement for us, calls us his own, redeems us, but also brings us into worship. Our worship service begins because God actually calls his people into worship. And then he actually sends us out. That's the benediction. So how does God form his people? He provides for his people patterns and rhythms of life. And if, if you're reading through a Bible reading plan this year, you're going to actually see this a lot with the different festivals and feasts and offering, that there's times and seasons that are given to Israel. And under the new covenant, we, we no longer have that old law with the sacrifices and offerings. We have a new and better and a once and for all atonement in Jesus Christ, where long ago he spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but now in these last days he has spoken by his son, who's the heir of all things. And when it comes to that, there's this change. And what we actually see is, though, there is still this pattern pattern and rhythm to life. The Sabbath is still given that we might come together and rest, that we might reflect on God's word, that we might pray and join in songs, hymns and spiritual songs with one another, that we might worship. And so these patterns, while they're not offerings and sacrifices because it's once and for all done, there is still that given to God's people. For example, in Acts 2 we read of the early church that they devoted themselves to the teaching of the, of the apostles, so the teaching of scripture, the fellowship with one another, the breaking of bread and prayer. There is still this rhythm in a world that often feels chaotic and feels like it lacks rhythm, feels like it lacks consistency. God still gives his people this consistency to worship in. And we see that God teaches us to worship in this, informing us how are we to worship, and this forming us of actually changing our hearts, that actually what we might do 
as the, the um, I believe it was Augustine, one of the early church fathers would say, that God actually shapes our affections. That we might to learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. That's what it means to have, to be formed by God, to be transformed, is that we might actually learn that difference. That we might be informed from his word where he speaks to us. That we might actually be formed. And he does this by the ministry of his Holy Spirit. That we might be formed more and more into the new man. That we might be more and more like Jesus. This is not something, pull up your bootstraps and get ready to work hard. This is something that he does. But in order to actually be obedient worshipers, as God's calling his people in Deuteronomy, we need to know what God says. And that's why God has Moses telling them, here is how you will be obedient. He's informing them. God is teaching his people how they are to worship. Because he knows what we need. He knows we need that reminder. Even though uh, the Israelites just had a 40-year reminder wandering in the wilderness. They're being reminded again and again. And God is a father who loves his children. He disciplines them because he loves them. And he is trying to teach teach them. He is trying to form them. That they might love the things that he loves. That they they hate the things that he hates. That they might actually reflect the God that they worship. Another way we could think of it, this is kind of just as I, I goes with my apology at the beginning of, as we're going through uh, this sermon this morning, of wanting to give kind of some technical things. Um, another thing as you're reading through scripture that I can encourage you to do is that we as a church do not stand on the shoulders of no one. Um, we stand as a confessional church, and we stand that we believe the, the Westminster Confession and the Shorter Catechism, the Larger Catechism, are actually a faithful summary of what God's Word teaches. So perhaps if it's your second, third, even first time reading through the Scriptures, I would actually encourage you to read through the Catechisms as well, the, these short summaries of what does Scripture teach to beginning to end. And you'll see if you find any copy of uh, of this of this summary of what the church actually believes, what scripture teaches you'll see actually that all of it is just citing scripture again and again and again and this topic that we're talking about of worship this morning and that God informs and forms informs and forms his people there's a great it's the the second question in the shorter catechism that I believe is is a good summary of all that I'm trying to communicate this morning The question reads, what rule hath God given to direct us how we might glorify and enjoy him? Which is what the the Westminster Divines give as the summary of scripture of what is the chief end of man? And the chief end with a lot of scripture citations is we are to worship and enjoy God. And the second question gets to this practical thing of how do we do that? How can we do that? My heart is an idol factory. How do I actually do that? How can I glorify and enjoy God? How can I worship him and live a life that is pleasing to him? And here's the the short summary of what scripture teaches. That the word of God contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament is the only rule to direct us how we might glorify and enjoy him. We're not guessing. The Canaanites spent a lot of time guessing. They'd go give an offering and maybe it wouldn't rain on their crops. Maybe they'd go hungry. And they'd say, I, I guess I need to bring a more costly offering next time. God gives us in his word that informedness, that information on how we might glorify and enjoy him. He actually tells us. And he actually cares for us as a loving father to actually teach us the long patience that we see of God with the Israelites. 
tells us so much about his character. So as we're going through these case studies, what we actually see again and again and again is it highlights God's patience. It highlights what we read in the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy. Who is this God that has redeemed them? How does he want them to live as his holy people in his holy land? This morning, we focus on that big question, how does God teach us to worship? And we've seen that in Deuteronomy, God informs our worship and he forms our worship. He shapes his people. And both of these he does by his own provision. For Israel, he provided the law and clear directions that they might be obedient worshipers, not worshipers who do whatever they want in their own eyes. And this is an act of God's grace for them. The same is true for us today, church. God gives us his word that we might know how to worship him, that we might know how to glorify and enjoy him. And God uses a long time to form his worshipers. For Israel, the period in the wilderness intended to form them into God's people was an act of grace, discipline, and mercy. They were already God's redeemed people from slavery. Now he's teaching them, how then do you live? And the same is true for us, church, that by his grace we're redeemed in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. There is nothing that we do to earn or merit that grace, but it has been freely given to us. And it's applied to us by that Holy Spirit who we are made a new creation by. That the old might go and that the new has come. That we might be obedient, sanctified, and repentant. That we might learn how to glorify and enjoy the God that loves us, and the God that saves us. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, uh, Lord, you are gracious and kind and merciful, and your patience abounds, and your, your love is steadfast and faithful. And you discipline us because you love us. You teach us how to worship that we might better serve you, that we might better glorify you, that our hearts might actually be made new, that we might actually learn what is holy and right and what is wicked and wrong. That in those things, Lord, that your son would be glorified, that his name might go out and be praised. Lord, I pray that you would shape our affections, that you would form us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.